Hey, good morning. It's good to be, it's like I, I get game day jitters every Easter. It doesn't matter how long you've been preaching, right? It's just, you just get up here and you're like, man, he's risen. It's exciting. Um, it's exciting. This is the whole reason, you know, that we're in ministry to begin with. It's because Jesus has overcome the grave. And we've been, we've been on this journey uh, in this two-part series where we've been looking at uh, this journey to what it looks like from, from, from hope to fulfillment. Um, and this series that we've, we've called Hosanna. And, uh, and, and I think it's significant. Last week, Carte just did a masterful job talking about this, this longing that we all have, this longing that we have to be fulfilled that God has put inside of us to make us whole. And because the tomb is empty, truly anything is possible for us. And I don't know how you've come in here today, but I want you to know that. We haven't come to, to celebrate, you know, the Easter bunny, you know, a, a cotton candy pastel resurrection. We, we've come... Uh, to encounter the living God of the universe who rules and reigns over his creation. And, uh, and, and the thing that I want to start off by talking about today is how this risen Lord who rules and reigns over his creation has the capacity to address both our despair and our hope. And we see that today as we look at the story of these two disciples who encounter Jesus in their despair on the road to Amazus. He is risen, and we all know that those words should mean something in our heart, but sometimes, if we're honest, they just don't mean as much to us. Maybe it means a lot to you today, or maybe it's a stretch, and you just, it was just everything that you could do to show up this morning. The truth is, is that Jesus can seem pretty small and distant when we're isolated and discouraged in life. And some of us are walking into Easter Sunday morning just like that with that small and distant Savior. And when I think about things like that terrible school shooting that happened at a Christian school in Nashville a couple weeks ago, when I think about friends who have lost loved ones recently, or I think about my own journey, the places that I've felt the most despair in my own life, I think about the year of 2016 and maybe something comes to mind in your life. But I was sitting at a church parking lot with four little kids all under the age of six, and I'd only been married for eight years. And I don't know why I pulled in that church parking lot, but I, I, you know, I guess it felt familiar to me. My wife was completely blind in one eye, having seizures on one half of her body, and we had no answers. Talk about feeling helpless. And I know many of you in the room know that feeling to one degree or another. That feeling that it seems like the Father just isn't going to come through for you in that moment. My mind was just ra racing. Am I going to lose my best friend, God? Are you going to do this to me? I don't know how to raise these kids by myself, God. Why can't the doctors just figure this thing out? She's been perfectly healthy. What's going on? And many of you know what it's like to feel helpless, to feel despair. Now, our story hasn't ended with hopelessness, of course. But my wife was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis the next day. And we've been on that journey with some days better than others. But I don't want to forget what it's like to feel hopeless. Why? Because I'm a better friend to you when I don't forget what it's like to feel hopeless. I'm a better dad to them when I don't forget what it's like to feel hopeless. And I'm a better husband and pastor when I don't forget. Why? Because I'm living out of my whole heart before God in light of his promise. And I'm intentionally inviting you to consider your unmet longings this morning. And why? 
because you're living with them and they have a great impact on your ability to, to see the fulfillment of the hopes of your heart. And my experience is, my hope for you is that your experience would be this, that it's, that, 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 that the, um, to the degree that you feel that despair and that hopelessness, that is often the place where God comes through and, and gives you the most hope in your despair. And I'm intentionally starting Easter morning in more of a contemplative place because my heart for you is that the resurrection wouldn't just be a new suit on a lifeless body this morning, church. But rather that the resurrection would be actual and accessible life and hope to you today. That's my heart. But we have to start in this very human place because that's where our text takes us today. Today we're going to do this. We're going to go on a walk with Jesus. So put on your dad New Balance shoes because we're going to go on a walk. You know the white ones? Some of you got them. Maybe you got them on. I'm sorry if you do. They're great. But put them on because we're going to go for a walk with Jesus. And it's going to have some twists and it's going to have some turns. But Jesus is going to be with us today. So here's our big idea as we go on this walk through Luke 24 today. The resurrection fulfills every longing that we've ever had in this life. And so today, I want to invite you to bring both your hope and your despair, wherever you came in at this morning, on our walk with Jesus. And here's what we're going to see, that there is a typical path that we walk in the face of hope. The journey when it seems, when hope seems absent, we're going to see that. The journey when hope is painful and it's risky. And then the journey when hope sets us free. So let's dig into Luke 24 and look at that journey when hope seems absent. At, at some point in, in most all of our lives, the resurrection of Jesus will seem insignificant in a moment for us. Um, we think, yep, yeah, but how's the resurrection changing my situation this morning, right? It isn't going to put my marriage back together. The resurrection didn't stop the diagnosis or bring my friend back, we might say. But every single one of us either has or will face a day when hope seems absent. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, where is Jesus when hope seems absent? Let's meet two disciples who felt the exact same way. Luke 24, verse 13 and 14. That very day, so just the context, Jesus has died uh, these were disciples of Jesus. That very day, two of them were going to a village outside of Jerusalem, about seven miles away, named Emmaus. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So picture this. There, there are 12 main disciples that we know about. and we, 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 we know their names from the Gospels of Jesus, uh, and you've heard a lot about them. But there are also more disciples who begin to follow Jesus over his public three-year ministry. And these disciples, just like every other disciple that's been called by Jesus since then, all have a job to do, all have a responsibility as disciples. That is to know Jesus and make him known to the world. To be a disciple, to be a witness of what Jesus has done, and then go make disciples. But, but what do you do when all of it falls apart, right? <laughs> so here we have, we have uh, these guys walking basically home from a funeral of, 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 uh, of, of their best friend and their, their lead disciple, their rabbi, who they were charged to make disciples of, um, and they are unemployed in the disciple-making business, right? I mean, they're walking back clueless, aimlessly. What are we going to do? And they're likely going back home, right? Um, and, but more than that, they're discouraged and they're, and they're isolated. So what do you imagine they were talking about on the road? 
In the moments of your deepest discouragement and doubt, what is it that you're talking about? Most, time, most of the times we're talking about the circumstances that lead to our discouragement and hope. And here's the, here's the crazy thing. Most of the time we talk to everyone else but God about those things, don't we? Um, so, so where is Jesus in our doubt? So good question. Let's keep walking and figure out where he's at here. So verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself, key words here, drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And, and Jesus said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So Jesus is God, which means that through the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, there is no place that we are that he is not. He's omnipresent, right? So it's no surprise that Jesus is drawing near to them in their despair. In their despair. There's no, no surprise that he's drawing near to us in our despair. Um, you know, Matthew 28, 20, uh, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, one of the most forgotten verses in the Bible. We all know the Great Commission, but we forget kind of the addendum to it, right? Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. There's the promise of God for us, that God is always with us. He's always with us, even in our despair, even in our hopelessness, even when hope seems absent. But they were blind to the hope that stood in their midst. Perhaps like some of us are this very day. You know, I, I think there are really two types of blindness when it comes to hope. And here's how I'll phrase them. There's a, there's a general kind of spiritual blindness that the Bible talks about. But then there is, for us Christians, a circumstantial blindness where we get blind to hope because of circumstances. So let's look at this real quick, the spiritual blindness. So if, if Jesus seems absent to you, you're probably suffering from some type of blindness, right? This is what the Bible talks about most frequently, and, and, and it's what these two disciples are really struggling with. The eyes of their heart had not yet been opened to see Jesus as that fulfillment of the hope that they had longed for. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 2, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 mentions this. Here's what Paul writes. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it's hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, in the case of those who are spiritually blind, who can't see Jesus as the fulfillment, the God of this world, little g God of this world, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of God. So if, if, if Jesus has, if your heart has never burned with the passion of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of all of your deepest longings, friend, you might be spiritually blind. Maybe you've never come to a saving faith, the knowledge of what Jesus Christ has done for sinners. Of course, Jesus and Easter is not good news to you if that's the place that you're in. But then there's another kind of blindness that even those who walk with Jesus suffer from. This form of unbelief is the kind of unbelief that, that a believer in Jesus struggles with maybe for a season. And typically what happens is that Satan seeks to outwit us, as 2 Corinthians talks about, by blinding us by some type of circumstance that seems to make us doubt his plan and his presence. So that church parking lot for me in Atlanta, right? I was becoming spiritually blind. The, the good news of the gospel wasn't good news to me because I was blinded. 
by this tragic circumstance right in front of me. It's when we find ourselves in the shoes of that father in Mark 9 that desires for his son to be healed, but it's a scary hope to have. You remember what the scriptures say? The father said this, I believe, but help my unbelief, right? I believe, but help my unbelief. If hope seems absent to you today, I want to invite you to consider which type of blindness you might be suffering from today. Has the word of Jesus ever burned in your heart before? Have you ever seen and believed all that Jesus has accomplished for you? All the ways he's been pursuing you, all the ways he's been making himself known to you. If not, today may be the day that the Lord is taking the scales off the eyes of your heart, saving you to see that Jesus is what your heart has always longed for. Or maybe on the other hand, maybe you've lost your zeal in Jesus because of the hardships of life. What would it look like either way to return to Jesus through a confession and repentance and, and chasing after him again? No matter where you're at, we pick up on this journey with Jesus questioning these two disciples who've lost hope. And verse 18 says this, Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said to them, What things? Jesus is playing along with them here, right? And, and they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in, in, in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priest and the rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death. And they crucified him. And then this is the key. This is the key right here, verse 21. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We, we, we had hoped that we were looking at God himself. We, we had hoped that he had been the one to make all things new. We, we had hoped that he would come through for us. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. In other words, it's hopeless. There's no way he can come back now. We had hoped that Jesus would come through for us. We had hoped that we could be set free from all this pain of being oppressed in this world. But sometimes it feels easier to just lose hope, doesn't it? We had hoped that the experience that we had with Jesus would never end. So where is Jesus when hope seems absent? The answer, he's near, walking with us even if our eyes can't see him. Jesus' presence is the antidote to any fear that extinguishes hope from our conscience. What's the only thing that keeps hope from being accessible? It's unbelief in the promises of God. That's how Satan seeks to blind us from that hope. But then the disciples, they, they keep walking with Jesus, and then something happens. And this is the journey when hope seems risky and painful that we keep walking in here. So our, our disciples, they, they, can, they continue on in their journey toward hope. And we notice that they're kind of aimlessly heading back to their life before Jesus, right? They're heading away from Jerusalem. They're heading away from everything that was happening. And this is a similar thing that Peter and the other disciples did. And you can read about it in John chapter 20 where, where all of these disciples were fishermen before they met Jesus. They, they left their nets and they followed Jesus. Now Jesus appears to be dead. And so they go back to fishing, right? And, and, and when we have unbelief in the proximity of Jesus... It always leads to despair and disbelief, which leaves us hopelessly kind of wandering through this life. But what does the journey out of an absent hope look like? It's standing face-to-face -face with hope 
and considering the risk to hope again, right? In Romans 4, Paul considers the risk of hope as he recounts Abraham's journey. This is like, this, this sentence makes no sense, like, logically, but it makes so much sense emotionally, doesn't it, and in our hearts. In hope, he believed against hope, right? That he should become the father of many nations, as he'd been told. You see, Abraham's been given this promise that he'll have descendants as numerous as the, the, the granules of sand on the seashore. But he's, you know, in his 90s, how is this going to happen? In hope, he believed against hope. This is what it's like to follow Jesus in this world. In hope, we believe against hope. There's a risk that we take to follow Jesus. Jesus is also present with these disciples in the risk and in the pain of this hope. And I think a proper way to describe it for us today might be the word cynicism, right? Cynicism. So here's how I've defined cynicism. It's, it's, it's kind of this innate mistrust and assumption of impure motives. Yeah, but, right? We say, yeah, Jesus is good, but, right? We, we, we say it like that. We're cynical because it, it, it's risky to believe that Jesus is going to come through for us. And many of us in the room know what I'm talking about when I say that. These disciples felt exactly the same way. Yeah, but it's been three days, right? There's no way he can raise from the dead. There's no way that he can set things right and come through for us. Luke 24, starting in verse 21, goes on to say this, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since all these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb uh, early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they, they found it just as the women had said, but they did not, but him they did not see. So, so this is interesting. And, you know, cynicism has a, a strange disconcerting power over our ability to hope, doesn't it? We can recite the actual good news of the gospel just like these disciples did. We can speak it back to the risen Lord himself, just like these disciples did, and one another, and it have no effect on our hearts. Isn't that amazing? You can show up at church on Easter Sunday, hear about the resurrection, and leave hopeless. That's the power that it has over us. That's the power of unbelief over us. And these disciples do just that. And why? Because the truth is not connected to their hearts. And this is some of us in here today, we are surrounded by hope, but it's not producing any lasting joy inside of us. We hear the truth, nothing. We speak the truth, nothing. We talk with Jesus about the truth, still nothing. Unbelief expressed through cynicism is a powerful tool of the enemy, my friends. If you're in a season where the truth of the resurrection is not connecting to your heart, it feels so painful, doesn't it? You want it so bad. You want to hope again. It reminds me about a time that I went out on the lake with Pastor Brandon several years ago, actually. Five years ago, I bought this, this old used boat. And when I say old, it was 20 years old, okay? So don't be thinking, all right, real nice boat here. And, 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 I, and I bought it uh, when it wouldn't start, which is also a real risk, wouldn't recommend that. Um, and after a few hours of messing around with it, I got it to this place where I, I thought it was, it was running good, right? And so I do what anyone would do. Um, I, I go out and, and I take it out on the lake um, on a Friday afternoon, and uh, I, I do what any person would do. They invite uh, their, their pastor friend along with them, right? And so we go out 
on the lake together. We get it off the trailer. It fires up real nice. And uh, we are driving it out, you know, just past the no-wake zone. And as soon as we get past that buoy, man, I just hammer it. And we're just, play, we're, we're, we're just going down Lake Lanier, you know, sun in our face. I mean, wind in our hair. I mean, we are just having a blast. The boat planes out, and then all of a sudden, right, catch, it starts to stutter, and it dies on us. And, guys, we are in the middle of Lake Lanier. It feels like the Atlantic Ocean, okay? There are waves just coming over the, I mean, it's crazy out there. And we are sitting out in the main channel of the lake. Uh, and the boat won't start. I'm calling my mechanic, or I'm like, hey, is there any? He's like, you're in the middle of the lake. How am I going to get out there? It just seems hopeless, all right? And so, you, you know, eventually we get it back to the trailer. I can't even remember how we got it back. I'm sure it was awkward. And, um, and, and, and I take it back to the mechanic straight away. I'm like, hey, man, you got to fix this. And, uh, and, and, and after several hours and dollars of diagnosis, um, uh, he, he says that uh, someone wired several of the components to the engine improperly. Like you had everything you needed in the boat. It was just hooked up the wrong way. I'm like, oh, well, that's nice. So how much is that going to cost me? And I'm not going to tell you how much that costs. But anyway, um, it's a great story. Made for a great story with Brandon down the lake. It was great. I don't, I don't know if he's been out with me since then. But um, this is kind of what, it li- what it's like um, when you have a cynical heart. You're surrounded by hope, but you're not operating out of hope. You're, you're in the boat on the lake, supposedly having a blast, but the boat won't start, and the waves are crashing in on you. The problem is an internal wiring problem. Our hearts have to be rewired by the power of the Holy Spirit to see Jesus as the risen Lord of the universe and to that make our hearts burn with passion, right, for that good news to become our good news. The real problem with this view of hope, this kind of cynical, this risky, painful hope, is that it's like we're imagining a future where Jesus isn't present in it with us, right? And oftentimes we do that. We, we, we kind of, um, we presume loss, right? We, we, we anticipate loss, like Jesus isn't going to meet us when we get to that juncture. And that's where this self-protection of cynicism comes in. And it just squashes all the hope that Jesus desires to give to us. Now, now notice this, in the absence of hope, and, and, and the pain of hope, notice one thing. Where is Jesus? He's still walking with these disciples, isn't he? The same place he is with us in our despair. So what would it look like for us to have hope that actually leads to freedom, right? What would that actually look like? Well, let's keep, let's keep journeying with these disciples here, starting in verse 25. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all the, the, that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Didn't this all have to happen, right? And so Jesus does the most amazing thing as they're walking. He, he gives them a Bible study, right? And what he does is he connects all of the dots, beginning with Moses and all the prophets and the whole Old Testament, and he connects everything to himself. He shows how he has fulfilled everything that the Bible has said needed to happen for Israel, for the church, to be redeemed. It's an amazing place. What a moment, right? We find that kind of the key interpretive device for all of the scriptures is that Jesus fulfills it all. Now, Jesus, you know, when you say it like that, it makes sense, right? When you read and you, you study John 19, like, like we did on Friday night, we see that Jesus is fulfilling even the things that the disciples are not aware of. That the whole book 
is about one person. It's about Jesus and him raised. And our lives find fulfillment in that one person. But is a supernatural Bible study with Jesus on the way to Emmaus enough for us to have hope? Apparently not. Apparently not. Not even the best sermon imaginable was enough to give these disciples hope, right? They, they still don't see Jesus with them, right? They're amazed at the truth, but they still are not seeing him. So verse 28 says this. So they drew near to the village that they were going, Emmaus, seven miles away, and he acted as if he was going to go farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, hey, stay with us. Stay with us, for it is evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them, Jesus did. So, so at this point, notice something. They still don't know that it's Jesus with them. They understand the scriptures more fully, but they think Jesus is still dead. <laughs> and what's this tell us? You can know God's word inside and out and not have hope that it's fulfilled in the resurrection of Jesus. And my prayer is that that would never be the case for us as a people. So how does this all come together? Verse 30, when he was at table with them, they're having dinner together. He took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. But he vanished from their sight and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on that road, when he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the 11 and those who were with them gathered together saying, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. It's all true. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. Now here's what we see. Jesus is the guest of two disciples who don't recognize him. And something miraculous happens that would never happen in Middle Eastern culture. The guest becomes the host. God, and here's what this teaches us, God is never revealed. He's not a phantom that we discover from some type of mystical knowledge or experience. When God is known, it is because he has chosen to make himself known, church. He's never passive, but he's in command and he's in charge. And today, he seeks to make himself known to you. And he's done it through the resurrection. He's not hiding out. You know, some kind of mystical creature for you to kind of discover through some kind of experience. He's making himself known to us today. Now, this passage, it, it mirrors what happened one week earlier when the disciples ate that last supper together. I want you to notice the language. He took. He blessed. He broke. He gave. And they knew. Jesus chose to reveal himself to these disciples in the breaking of the bread around this meal. And it's then and only then that the Holy Spirit connected all the dots and made the word come alive in their heart that was about Jesus and thus confirmed the word with these experiences that they had had. Now, this is so important for us today because a lot of times we're looking for kind of this mountaintop experience to kind of feed the high of feeling close to God. But Jesus knows this, and he gives us so much more. Because Jesus desires to give us a more solid foundation for our hope than just a fleeting or exhilarating experience of him. The same, the same way that we have, have had, you know, even many times in this room as we've worshiped together. The experiences of the, these disciples 
They're reconfirming all that Jesus has said and been to them. You know, they experience really just a glimpse of him for a split second. Do you notice how quickly Jesus vanishes? Right, because Jesus didn't, he wanted to leave them with something more lasting. He wanted to leave them with his word, right? And friends, when his word is opened up through the Holy Spirit and our eyes are open to receive all that Jesus is for us, our hearts burn too. Jesus is more than just a fleeting experience that we got to chase. And notice what happens after this. They left Jerusalem. You know, initially they left Jerusalem with this one-way ticket. We're going to Emmaus. We're getting out of town. Kind of reminds me of, uh, of Jonah when he's called to go uh, to Nineveh, right? He's like, I'm getting a one-way ticket the opposite direction. I'm going to Tarshish, right? They leave, they leave Jerusalem like in despair, right? The Passover feast, as soon as the Sabbath restrictions are lifted, they get out of town. But as soon as their hearts are awakened to the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of Jesus in their presence, they head straight back to Jerusalem, right? Because that's what happens uh, when, when, when the word of God comes alive inside of us. There was no way they could stick with their life of absent hope anymore. The two strangers on the road to Emmaus become two witnesses of the resurrection. And that changes everything, doesn't it? Friends, we have all traveled the road to Emmaus in one way or another at some time in our lives. We have all had our hopes completely dashed, and we wondered if our Father is ever going to come through and if Jesus is even present. We are the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Christ joined us on that road, has opened our hearts to the Scriptures so that we could see our cross and our dash hopes taken up into the plan of God. God's plan and God's presence are with us. And by God's grace, Jesus has and is revealing himself to us this morning as the one who is present even in our despair. It is he that transforms us. It is he that renews us. It is he that recreates us just as he restored hope and joy once again in the disciples on the road to Emmaus. And friends, because the tomb is empty, if you don't walk away with anything else this morning, I want you to know this. Because the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Anything is possible. I wish I could recount all the ways that I've, that I, that I, I wish I could tell you all the ways that I've seen that come true in my own life. My prayer is that you would ruminate on that today, how anything is possible because the tomb is empty. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.